forgive. Forgiveness is the principle behind the commandment, don't murder. And I'm going to prove it to you. Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not murder. That seems pretty simple, right? Just don't murder. Seems like, I don't know if we need to hear that sermon or not, but it says it. Uh, and let me just start by telling you this, that the word murder, originally in the King James, it translated kill. That is the wrong word. Uh, there are different words that our English vernacular has and for different types of murder. Manslaughter, murder, um, kill, so forth and so on. So this comes from a Hebrew word, ratsach, R-A-T-S-H-C-H, which means to kill out of hatred or without authority. Here's what I want to just start the sermon off by saying. If you are in law enforcement and you have had to kill, if you are a part of our military or our judicial system or even capital punishment, which is actually was in the Bible, and our judicial system of America came from the Bible, God actually started with the word manslaughter. He was the first one. He invented that word. And so if you've had to kill in any of those areas, you have not violated the sixth commandment. In fact, we, uh, our hearts go out to you if you've had to kill in military or police force or that kind of thing. Uh, because I'm sure it's a very traumatic thing that you had to do, but because you did that, we are more free and we are more safe. So we thank you for your service if that was you. So you have not violated the Sixth Commandment if you had to kill, because that this is referring to uh, bigotry, racism, jealousy, envy, hatred is what it's referring to, murder. And so I want to make sure we get that out of the way. So now, here's my question. How many people in here, by a show of hands, and I am being serious, have you murdered somebody, or are you planning on murdering anybody in your life? I remember one time someone interviewed Billy Graham's wife, and they said to her, have you ever thought about divorce? She said, divorce, no, but murder, yes. Um, but the question is, have you ever murdered or are you planning on murdering? Now, none of you are going to raise your hands in seriousness. None of you are. If you, if you are, we have undercover security to take you out in a heartbeat. But why are you not planning on murdering anybody? That's the question. Is it because... Um, you don't want to go to jail or is it because you love God? I don't think that's true. I think the reason you haven't murdered anybody is because you don't want to go to jail. Um, let me ask you this. When you come to church, are you here to hear me preach about uh, the judicial system of America, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, or are you here to hear about God's Word? When you die, uh, will the creator of the universe judge you by what the policeman in Myrtle Beach said you did or will, they, will he judge you by the words that came out of his mouth? What holds more value in your life, uh, the American government or the Bible? So the reason you have not killed people and you're not planning on murdering anybody, is it because you love God and you don't want to dishonor him? Or is it because you're scared of going to jail and facing a trial and having a life like that? Which one? Both. That's a good answer. That's, that's fair. I believe that. Uh, let me ask this. If you had to pick one or the other, would you pick going to jail the rest of your earthly life but living in heaven for eternity? Or would you pick living in a mansion and being free and rich on earth but going to hell for eternity? Which one would you pick? Jail and heaven. Okay, right. Okay. So why don't you murder people? Uh, let's say that God said it was okay to murder. Let's say the Bible says, hey, you can murder, no big deal, anytime you feel like it. Uh, you're not going to be punished by me. There's no consequence by me. You can murder anytime you want to. But the American government said, thou shalt not murder. Would you murder then? No, because you don't want to go to jail. Because the American government says it's wrong. But do we do the right thing because we love God or because we don't like the consequences on earth? In other words, the Bible says that sex outside of marriage is wrong. But society says it's okay. 
So which one do you not do that because you love God? Is it a consequence? There's no consequence in America for that. There's no consequence for homosexuality in America at all. But the Bible says something different. What if the American government said that you could murder anytime you want to, anytime you feel like it, that's just how our society is, no big deal. But God's word said, don't do it. Then what would you do? You sure you still wouldn't do it? Because we have sex outside of marriage. The Bible says that's wrong. If you really revere this more than you revere this, what about speeding? If you know you're not going to get caught, you still speed even though God says obey the laws of the land. And the reason we don't speed isn't because we love God. We don't speak because we don't want a ticket. So if you really think God's word is everything, I want to show you some scriptures. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that God judges us by what's in our hearts. Matthew 22, 37 says we are to love the Lord of God with all your heart. Romans 10, 9 says your eternity is not based on how well you obey the laws of the land. Your eternity is based on the fact that you believe in your heart that God rose Christ from the dead. Proverbs 4, 23 says every issue in your whole life starts with your heart and then it comes on the outside. Somebody say... God is a God of hearts. Say it. Do you know that there were these Christian, let me rephrase it, religious people who did a bunch of good things on the outside called Pharisee. And they had this ideology that as long as you didn't say it, it wasn't a sin. As long as you didn't act out on it, you were okay with God. As long as you didn't do it, then everything was fine. You might have thought those evil thoughts, but as long as you didn't let them come out of your mouth, then God's okay with you. You might hate your boss, but as long as you don't tell them off, then you haven't sinned. Um, is, you, you can think about sleeping with that person all you want to, but as long as you don't do it, then God's going to be okay. And Jesus came along and said, y'all are paying too much attention to the Roman government or what the Hebrew government says or whatever these people have come up with. Y'all aren't paying attention to what my word says. And in Matthew 23, Jesus just let them all have it. In verse 27, he said this, Woe to you Pharisees, snakes, hypocrites. You're like white graves which outwardly appear beautiful, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. You will not escape hell. Hell? We haven't done anything wrong. How can you say we're going to hell? And Jesus said it's easy. Because God is not a God of the outside. God is a God of the inside. And you told me that God's word is more revered in your heart than the government. You told me that this is what you're going to be judged by, not this. You told me that this is what you're supposed to love God with all your heart, whether anything outside, inside, policemen are okay. You said the Bible was more important to you. And the Bible says, are you ready for the big kicker today? In 1 John 3.15, whoever hates another in his heart is a murderer by God's standards. God just said the same sin as murder is the exact same sin as hatred in your heart. So now I have a question for you. How many people have you killed? How many people are you murdering right now in your heart? If the outside consequence matched the inside of your heart because let me tell you with God it does but if our American government said your punishment your consequence is based on if you honor what God says 
What would your punishment be for how you treat people in your heart? So I have three points for you today on why God says that hatred is equal to murder. Three points on showing you how a heart gets to the place of murdering somebody on the inside. If you're ready, say, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Number one is this. Hate or unresolved anger precedes murder. These are the people that just blow up. I mean, they looks like they're holding in for a while and then the slightest thing happens or something said and they just go fierce. They scream or they cuss or their face turns red and they throw their hands around and they get so upset and, and, and they don't realize it. Most likely it's a, it's a rejection root on the inside and I'll prove that to you in a little bit. Someone's done them wrong in the past, rejected them because of their weight, their looks, their personality. Uh, they just felt rejection from a coach because they didn't get picked to play on the team. Rejection from a divorce. Somehow, somehow, a parent walked out on them and they had this root of rejection and they don't realize that they're carrying it with them everywhere they go. And then when somebody new comes in their life or some new relationship or some new boss or some new pastor, they're carrying around a fence from an old pastor. I can't believe my old pastor did this to me. And they come here and they're unedged and they're so unhealthily guarded. And when the right thing happens or this takes, all of a sudden they blow up and explode. It's because they're filled with hate and anger. And Genesis 4 or 5, which is, uh, let's see, we're going to study one of the first, the first murder. It says, the Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but he rejected. Everybody say rejected. Yeah. Rejected Cain and his offering. Cain became very angry and lost his temper. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Well, I'm angry because this, no, no, no. Why are you angry? I'm angry because they didn't know. Why are you angry? I'm angry because 14 years, no. Why are you angry? You're angry because you're choosing to be. You, the Holy Spirit has a fruit called self-control. You don't have to blow up. You can be healed. God can deliver you from the, no, I'm angry because they didn't. No, you're angry because you're choosing to hold it in. You're blowing up because you made a choice not to forgive, not to let it go. Why are you angry? Sin is crouching at your door. Remember that phrase. We're going to talk about that. Eager to control you, but you must rule over it. In verse 8, while they were in the field, Cain killed Abel. 1 John 3, 12, do not be like Cain who murdered his brother because he hated Abel. Do you know that 85% of all school shootings, the very first um, psychiatric helper to come in there, after it happened, after they got into custody, the 85% the, the of every school shooter the first thing they portrayed was they were angry and filled with hatred towards their peers for rejecting them. It's a root of rejection. And they hold it on the inside and they just explode. And when you ask them why, they make excuse after excuse. God said, why are you angry? I'm angry. Stop making excuses and deal with it once and for all. And here's what happens. Hurt people always hurt people. The second hurt is the verb. People who have been hurt and haven't held it, haven't dealt with it correctly, they always end up hurting somebody else. It's very, let me give you the analogy for this point. It's similar to if you have a pot and our heart is the pot and we fill it with water and we put it on the stove and someone does us wrong and the, the heat gets turned up. Somebody says the wrong thing, the heat gets turned up. Their name is brought up and the heat gets turned up. Or you, you barely do anything, offend them or say something the wrong way and th that turns the heat up on them. And it's because their heart is filled with this anger or this water, and all of a sudden things start to boil over. But if there's no water in the pot, 
no matter how high you turn up the temperature, there'll be no boiling. You got to get rid of the water in the pot. Get rid of the, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you an application of exactly how to do it. And I dare you to try it. But you got to get rid of the water in the pot so that when things get turned up, when the heat comes on, you won't boil over and do something you regret. You won't murder in your heart. Ephesians 4.26 says this, when you're angry, don't, so listen, so we can be angry and not sin. Anger is an emotion. An emotion can rise up and you can deal with it properly. But if you don't, here's how you don't, here's how, here's how you sin with anger. You go to bed angry. You let the sun go down upon your wrath. And I love the next scripture. Leave no foot. Remember God told um, Cain, sin's crouching at your door. All it needs is a foothold. You know, like when someone's going to slam the door and you put your foot in there. When you go to bed angry, the minute you fall asleep, I believe, that, and, and I, I'm a, I love theology, you know, it doesn't say a demon, even though I'm going to talk to you about demons in a second. It actually says the devil himself. And that's so, because you know, people say, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I've never murdered anybody. At least I'm not a murderer. Whoa, you're doing the, it's the exact same thing in God's eyes. Exact same. The door is open and Satan slithers into that foothold because you've gone to bed with anger in your heart. Because when you go to bed with anger in your heart, you wake up with a tree that's going to produce hatred, animosity, bigotry, racism, all these things, uh, unforgiveness. I mean, things that will torment you, torment you on the inside. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22, you heard it said, and he's quoting the Old Testament commandments. And everybody that says, Oh, the Old Testament is so much harder than the New Testament. Okay, watch this. You heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, anyone who continues to be angry with someone will be guilty of judgment. There's a famous welterweight boxer champion named James Tony, And James Tony, they would say about this man that he seemed like when he was in the ring, he was possessed by demons. They literally said that. And so one day a reporter asked James, they said, man, how do you fight with such aggression? I mean, you destroy your opponent. How do you do it? And everyone stopped to hear the answer. They expected him to say, I just love to box. It's just in my nature and it's my passion. He got in the microphone very slowly and he said, when I was a little boy, my father walked out on me and my mother and all my siblings, left us alone for her to raise us by herself. And so every time I step in the ring, I picture my father's face on my opponent. And I just blow up and explode with such, hanger, with such hatred and anger that I destroy my opponent. Okay, listen, some of y'all, every person that comes in your life, you see them as an opponent. And you don't realize it, but you're taking that one person that did you wrong. The boss that fired you for no reason, the person that walked out on you for somebody else, whatever it was, and you don't realize, and you're treating this new relationship just like the person that did you wrong. You're, you're blowing up, you don't even know why you're doing it, it's because you haven't dealt with unresolved anger in your heart. Unresolved anger and hatred always leads to murder. Okay, but here's number two, watch this. Unforgiveness precedes hate and anger. Unforgiveness precedes hate and anger. Listen. God has a zero tolerance for unforgiveness. Everybody say zero tolerance. He has a zero tolerance. Why does God have a zero tolerance for unforgiveness? Here's why. Because you and I have been forgiven. You and I murdered his son. It was because of us that his child was hung on a cross. 
And he forgave us for hanging his child on a cross. Therefore, he expects us to forgive that person because they did not do us as wrong as we did his son. You understand the point there? We have not been done as wrong as we did to Jesus, and we've been forgiven of that. Uh, you know, the, uh, if you're taking notes, you can write um, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, I think it is. Uh, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, it says, forgive us our debts. You know, as we forgive our debtors, uh, Luke says sins, Matthew says debts. The word debt there does not mean the same uh, word that we use in our English vernacular. I have some credit card debt. I have a debt on my home. It's a different Greek word altogether. Um, the only other place where that word debt is found in the Bible is in Matthew 18, which I'm going to tell you the story. But it's referring to a debt between uh, $52 million and $4 billion. And it's owed by a person who makes minimum wage. That's, that's, that's the Greek word for debt there. It's a word that means a debt you could never repay even if you had 10 lifetimes to do it. That's the word debt in the Lord's Prayer and in Matthew 18. So this servant owed a king that kind of debt between $52 million and $4 billion and he made minimum wage. Matthew 18, 25 said the servant could not pay his debt. So he begged the king, please forgive me, please forgive me. In verse 27, the king forgave him the debt and let him go. So after he let him go, the servant, which is me and you, goes to this other guy around town that he knows, and this guy owes him $100, okay? He just got forgiven of $4 billion. Now he finds a guy that owes him 100 bucks, and he says, give me my money. And the guy says, I don't have your money. I don't know what to do. And so the servant beats the snot out of him and demands the $100. The king finds out about what the servant did to the guy that owed him 100 bucks. And in verse 33, the king said, I forgave you just because you asked me to. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. In verse 35, the king turns him over to tormentors. And another word for tormentors here can be like demonic oppression. And Jesus concluded, this is just how my heavenly father will deal with every single one of you unless you forgive from your heart all offenses. Now you say, how could God let somebody be oppressed by demons? Because listen, consequence is what causes us to change. You don't murder because you'll go to jail. You don't, you don't want to get in trouble. So if you realize that the, the, um, the consequence for murder on the outside is less than the consequence for hatred on the inside. In fact, that the consequence is, is greater, greater for unforgiveness in your heart. Tormentors. Um, let me say this. God will allow you to be tormented uh, to get you to run to him and beg him for his grace and mercy so you can pour it out on other people. God will allow you to have consequences in your life so you will change. The reason your parents spank you the reason they took away your cell phone is to teach you, don't do this again. The reason God, our Heavenly Father, loves for us to go through consequences is it causes us to run to Him. Amen. The people that have the worst consequences are usually the ones that run to Him the most and receive the most from Him. People that don't have many, con they don't pay attention to their consequences. They think they're prideful and they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But when we see when we're humble enough to see consequences, we change. We run to God. Okay, let me make a statement to you that I, I, some of you will understand, some of you won't yet understand it. You have no idea how free and healed you could possibly be until it actually happens. Because some of you have lived this way for so long. 
you don't even see how unhealthy your heart is. Some of you, and I, I know you personally, some of you are so unhealthy in your heart because of unforgiveness and hatred. You think, well, I never get offended. And it's because your guard is so strong, you let nobody in. You don't want any close friends. You don't want to serve your church in a close manner. Because you are so scared. You're going to get hurt like you were before. Is that really healthy? And I'll, I'll tell you a story in a little bit. I, you, you have no idea how oppressed you can actually be until you're free from that oppression. You think that demons don't, that unforgiveness doesn't affect you in a demon sense? Well, let me tell you some things unforgiveness does that scientists say it does, okay? It causes headaches, skin irritations, high blood pressure, personality disorders, divorce, which is the hardness of heart, bigotry, name-calling, gossip, division, war, on and on it goes. Some, this, this, one of the surveyors that I, I take note of when I study polled several million Americans, and they asked them, the first question was, they sat them down and said, how important is forgiveness? And 94% of these Americans, millions of them, said forgiveness is one of the most important things we could ever do as human beings, one to another. The next question was, is there anybody in your life who you absolutely hate and wish they were dead? <laughs> After they examined and went through the question, the president, your boss, your ex, your, you know, your last best friend, on and on. 50% said there's somebody we wish would die. Of the 94% that said forgiveness is so important. <laughs> I think that's what we're like. We know forgiveness is important, but deep in our hearts, there's somebody who we absolutely hate. Um, in 1982, the first Friday, which was the 1st of January, 1982, Kevin Tennell, who was 17 years old, was driving drunk and he hit an 18 year old girl named Susan and killed her at the trial uh, he got convicted of manslaughter and he got his punishment from the court and he actually became a, a campaigner against drunk driving but the family of Susan her parents sued Kevin for 1.5 million dollars the court was just about to rule in their favor, and behind the scenes, the lawyers and the family got together and worked out a settlement of $936. $1.5 million for their daughter's life, and they settled on $936. Here was the key. The $936 was to be paid $1 every Friday, the check written out to the family and mailed for 936 Fridays. One Friday, one dollar for every Friday that Susan was alive before Kevin took her life. At first, Kevin was thrilled with the $936 agreement. But after weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years of reliving what he did to that girl every weekend, he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't function. He couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't go to work. The guilt was destroying him. So he offered the family two boxes full of $1 checks already signed and post-dated so they could deposit it every weekend. And the family denied that. They wanted penance. At one point, he was so guilt-stricken, he stopped writing the check. He couldn't even take it anymore. He wanted a more harsh and severe punishment 
that he could just get out the way. So he went to jail for 30 days because he stopped writing the checks. When he got out of jail, the judge told him, go back to writing them. That's part of the deal. After 936 Fridays, he finally wrote the last check. Nobody argued with the family's anger. Nobody argued their need for penance. But my question is, how many checks were enough? Was 936 checks enough for their daughter's life being taken by this guy? When they received the final payment, were they finally at peace? Was 196 months of remorse adequate? If you were the family of the girl who was killed, how many payments would you need? How many payments would you want? Let me ask this. How many payments do you ask for now for what was done to you? How many times of you gossiping about them is enough for you to have the hatred out of your heart? How bad do they need to hurt for you to forgive them? How horrible of an event did they need to go through for you to feel like you can move on? What do you require when somebody hurts you? Point number three is this. Failure to love precedes unforgiveness. Failure to love. Remember, remember for those of you that are all about grace, let's forget the, new, the ten, ten Commandments for a minute and let's go to the grace side. Love God. Love people. That's what it says over here on this side. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus said, love your enemies. I'd rather just not kill them. Can we just stick to the old time? I'd rather just not murder them. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. Okay, this is the key scripture for today. Okay, this is the key scripture. I got three stories to tell you and I'm going to let you go. This is the key scripture. Um, years ago, I had this guy in my life who claimed I was his best friend. He always went, oh, John Paul's my best friend. Best friend. The reason he said that was because for eight years, I helped walk with him through all kinds of horrible things in his life and in his heart. Uh, when he was depressed, he'd come to me. When he was lonely, he'd show up at my front door. When he needed money, I would give it to him. Uh, when he needed to talk, I'd always answer the phone. He battled homosexuality at a time, but you know we walked through, prayed him through, and, and, and he recognized that flesh pattern because of things that happened to him when he was a child. And he delivered and didn't step into that anymore. He met a wonderful Christian girl and they got married. Uh, he started having some kind of sexual issues that involved animal stuff, and these things are real, and people go through it. And so his wife was going to leave him, but we prayed and got together and met week after week after week, and they reconciled, and things continued to heal in his life. He started having children, and they're healthy, great kids. He got a good job, was being promoted, and things were going well with him. And I was there with him for eight years, every single time he went through anything. Uh, when I went through my divorce many years ago, uh, it was just a horrible time in my life. I, I lost everything, just a dramatic, emotionally. I can't even express to you how, how horrible it was. And at one point, these people were having meetings about me, and I found out that this guy who said I was his best friend was, um, was there, it was going to be at the meetings. So I figured, okay, if I go, I'm sure I at least will have one person that will be my friend, one person that will show me mercy, one person that will be there for me, Someone who I know is, you know, at least there to help walk me through my difficult time. And so I show up at the meeting, and people are screaming and cussing, and it's just the most unchristian meeting you could ever imagine. 
And this guy was in charge of the meeting. He called the meeting. He was just fueling the fire, and anytime it would start to cease, he would pour more gasoline on it. And I was shocked. I mean, I was shocked. Shocked. I just literally broke down and was crying so hard, I was just going to throw up. I mean, it was just, I was just could not stop crying, and people are you know, doing their thing. And at one point towards the end of the meeting, I look over, and on the front row is this guy, and he's just got a big smile on his face. And he has a recording device in his hand. He's recording the whole thing. And at that moment, a demon of hatred entered into me. I thought, I'll give you something to listen to on that recording. And I let him have it. I mean, I said everything you could think of. I I, I uncovered every sin in his life. I mean, I destroyed him with my words. Destroyed him. Um, You know, months went by. And and I'm not pastoring. I I did not. This is before I started Solid Rock at Market Common. I went to other churches, visiting churches, see what I was going to do, where I was going to go. And I went to this one big church where one of my kids was having a, a production with the children's ministry. And so I went to watch the production. It's a Sunday morning, and I'm sitting by myself. There's a hundred empty chairs around me. So There's a big auditorium of a church. I'm by myself completely, watching my child in the middle of a service. And I see this guy at the corner of my eye, just hundreds of rows down, and he gets up and starts walking toward me around the church. And so I've had the thought, well, the Spirit of God's moving maybe, and he wants to reconcile, and he's going to ask me to forgive him, and we're going to hug, and it's going to be all okay. He walks around and he comes up behind me in the middle of the church service and he whispers in my ear, don't you dare talk to me or my family while you're in this church. Nobody wants you here. And when he said that, (laughs) that demon of hatred in me rose up again. I turned around and I'm just telling you all this because I like to be transparent. In the middle of the church service, I turn around and I punch him as hard as I possibly can. I didn't connect as much as I wanted to, but I connected enough to get him on the floor. I went to go for another punch, but ushers are walking, and he slips by, and he's crawling out the aisle, and and whatever, that kind of thing. I had to go to counseling, believe it or not. (laughs) I'm in counseling three times a week, and I just don't know what to do with my life, and I'm filled with all this hatred and anger, and I want him to die. I envision texts coming in saying, so-and-so has had a heart attack. He's dead. And I just envisioned myself throwing a party and enjoying hearing that news. I had created a torture chamber in my heart. And three times a day, I dragged him down there and I tortured him. And it felt so good. It felt so good. I wanted him off this earth. I wanted him destroyed. I wanted him to lose everything he possibly had. Because I thought that would make me feel better. So I went to counseling, and at one point, my counselor reads me the scripture, love your enemies and pray for this. And I say, how, how in H-E-L-L am I supposed to love this guy? I want him dead. I want him to die today. She said, well, you got love, love him. What does it mean to love? And here's what she taught. Remember, we all know this. Love isn't a feeling. Love is an action. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells you what love is. Love isn't taking somebody out for ice cream. Love isn't going with them to the movies. Love, it says in 1 Corinthians 35, love forgives everything. Love believes the best. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Let me tell you what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is forfeiting all expressions of private and public judgment. In other words, I'm not going to gossip about you anymore. I'm not, the second your name comes up, if I say something negative about you, I haven't forgiven you. 
And by an action of faith, I'm not going to speak anything negative of you anymore. Forgiveness is releasing them and all their debt to the judgment of God. The balance is now zero. You don't owe, they don't owe you an explanation. They don't owe you an apology. You've forgiven. Amen. Now, there's still consequences. They may go to jail for what they did to you, or you may not see them for lunch every day for what they did. There's still consequences, but you've released the debt. Forgiveness is not always reconciliation or trust. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is immediate by faith, but trust is earned. Trust is earned. So I want to show you a quick video, and then I'm going to tell you one more story, but I want to show you a quick video of someone who knew how to, who understood the power of forgiveness, and it has to do with a murderer uh, who they called the BTK killer. Take a look at this video. A lot more to it if everyone watch it at home. Last thing I want to teach you this. <clears throat> the scripture was, love your enemies and pray for those. That's the application today. That's how we don't have murder in our hearts. Love your enemies. Action of faith to forgive and pray for those who hurt you. So my counselor said, John Paul, you need to pray for this guy. I said, okay, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you strike him down with lightning sometime in the next three days and make him suffer terribly. I did. Lord, I pray that you take away everything he has until he realizes how wrong he was. I said, what in the world am I supposed to pray for this guy? Here's what she said. You pray the same thing for your enemy that you want for yourself. Lord, I pray that you give him a healthy marriage. I pray that you heal him of anything unhealthy in his heart. I pray that his children rise up and succeed, do great things. I pray that you promote him at work. Do you know, can you believe that the Bible is actually true? Can you believe that whenever you love your enemies and pray for those that do you wrong, things actually change in your heart? You know, the more I prayed for him, the easier it got and the less I thought about him. Now I can talk about him. I can see him at Target, whatever, and it does not bother me in the least. In fact, I even took him an apology letter, and I'm not, I'm not bragging on me. I'm bragging on Jesus changing my heart. I took him a letter to his work telling him everything I was sorry for. And it wasn't manipulative. I forgive you for what you did to me. None of that stuff. It was, I'm sorry that I said this about you. That was wrong and immature of me. I apologize for punching you and whatever. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. It was totally, you know, listen, God can do the same thing in your heart. Same thing. I want to read you a letter and I'm going to let you go after this. Uh, there is a group of people who were on death row for murdering a child. These group of people. They were part of the murder. And the father of the child writes the people a letter. Do you understand? I'm going to read a letter to you that was written by the father of the child who was murdered. And he's writing it to the group of people who murdered the child. He says, you're probably surprised that I, of all people, am writing a letter to you. But I ask you to read the letter and consider my request seriously. As a father of the child who you took part in murdering, I need to tell you, I forgive you. I realize it may be hard for you to believe, but I really do. At the trial, when you confessed to your part in the events that cost my son his life, I immediately forgave you from my heart. I can only hope you believe me and accept my forgiveness. This isn't all I have to say to you. 
I want to make you an offer. I want to adopt as my own child. You see, my son who died was my only child. And now I want to share my life with you. This may not make sense to you or anybody else, but I believe you're worth the offer. You see, I'm a very rich and powerful man. I've arranged matters that if you will receive my offer, not only will you be pardoned for your crime, but you will also be set free from your imprisonment and your sentence of death will be dismissed. At that point, you will become my adopted child. I realize it's a risky offer for me to make to you. You might be tempted to reject it, but I make it to you without reservation. Finally, you may be concerned that once I adopt you, you may do something to cause me to deny your rights as heir to my wealth. But nothing could be further from the truth. If I can forgive you for your part in my son's death, I can forgive you for anything. Some call me foolish for my offer to you, but I wish for you to call me dad. Sincerely, the father of Jesus.